Well, if you would keep your Bibles open at uh, the passages, passage that's just been read, I'm going to ask you periodic, uh, periodically to glance down, make sure what I'm telling you is true and is there in that passage. This evening, we return to our out-of-term series in Mark's Gospel, which we have called, Who is This Man? Mark's Gospel is a short and fast-moving book, full of descriptions of what Jesus did. But here, we encounter Jesus' teaching in the form of a parable. Now, our word parable comes from the Greek, which really means to put things side by side. And the things that are put side by side in a parable are explanations. And that's particularly helpful when we're required to make a jump. A jump from the familiar to the unfamiliar. A a jump from the worldly to the spiritual. Uh, And in the next half an hour, we're going to make the jump together. Several kinds of teaching are described as parables in the scriptures. There are simple illustrations, puzzles, allegorical stories, that is, stories with a symbolic meaning, as here. And for these parables, Jesus draws on a variety of sources. In one case, an event in history, possible events, improbable ones, everyday life, and once again, as here, nature, the world around. And Jesus handles parables in a, in a number of different ways. He often leaves hearers to draw their own conclusions. Sometimes he asks questions to prompt understanding. Whilst at others, he gives explanations, either spontaneously, or in this case, just glance down, verse 10, in response to questions. Questions from the disciples. You know, some people think Jesus only had 12 disciples. It's not true. The 12 and the others, have a look there in verse 10. Luke gives us even more information, spelling out who some of them were, men and women. A large number, not just the 12. And they ask him about parables. Now, when we we approach a, a, a parable, we have to bear in mind uh, 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 some principles. Although a major topic of parables is the kingdom of God, that is the rule of God through the Messiah. It's there in verse 11. Glance down again. That's the expression that Jesus Jesus uses. The kingdom of God. That's a main uh, theme in the parables. Each parable addresses a specific truth 
so we mustn't misapply it to other areas. Not every aspect of a parable has meaning, so we shouldn't over-interpret them. And finally, parables don't cover every eventuality. So you may read this parable and be left with some questions, but they're not necessarily addressed by the parable. You have to look elsewhere when that sort of thing happens. But why teach in parables? Well, we could debate it, but we don't have to, because that's really the question uh, that the disciples asked. In Matthew, in his account of this event, he makes it clear that one of the questions they asked was, why do you teach in parables? And Jesus gives an answer. And it's there in verses 11 and 12. And if you thought that the answer was going to be, well, of course, they're simple stories. To explain simple truths to simple people, well, I'm afraid you couldn't be more wrong. Look at the answer Jesus gives there in verse 11. He told them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to those on the outside, everything is said in parables so that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving and ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. Matthew uh, adds a little bit more detail in his account of uh, this event. And Jesus says at one point, the secrets of the kingdom of God is given to you, but not to them. Parables are both revealing and concealing. So what's it about? Well, Michael Green describes a movement in the Gospels from the synagogue to the seashore. Look there at verses 1 and 2. Where is Jesus at this moment in time? On this occasion, he's not in the synagogue. He's teaching increasingly in public places to a diverse group of people. He's standing in a boat while they're gathered as a great crowd on the seashore. This is at least the second time that he's done it. Uh, another occasion is described earlier in the gospel. You see, he, there is an increasingly polarized response to the message that Jesus brings. Darrell Bock describes it as he gathers disciples and gains opposition. And parables are a vehicle 
for teaching those who persevere. Well, if you're not bothered, you remain in darkness. But at this point, I think it's worthwhile just stopping to remind ourselves what Jesus' heart is about the matter. And we find something of that in an incident that Matthew describes in chapter 23, verse 37 of his gospel, when Jesus looks over the city and says this, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And you were not willing. It's a great lament. And Jesus takes upon himself this maternal image. I have to watch at this point because my, my eyes are drawn to the bird watchers uh, amongst us. Uh, because this behavior is... Um, very uh, common in birds, where the bird stretches its wings out like a cape or a mantle. And that's what their behavior is called. It's called mantling. And Jesus is using that uh, as an image. Uh, and hen projects its wings like a mantle. And the chicks run to get under the protection, not only not just physical protection, but actually protection even from the sight of a predator. And that's Jesus' heart. I want you to be like that. But you're unnatural chicks that don't run under the wings. And so he laments. That's Jesus' heart. Well, our parable has three components. There's the seed, the farmer sows the word, verse 14, meaning the word of God. Matthew has it that Jesus also says the message about the kingdom. Then there's the sower. The seed is sown by the farmer, verses 3 and 14. Most immediately, that's Jesus. But subsequently, and his, his disciples and his, his people through all ages, whether that's in the formal preaching of the word tonight or the gossiping of the gospel over the garden fence or to the plumber or decorator that comes to your home. The soil... Uh, stands for the person who hears the word. In fact, the hearer is the focus of the parable. Since the seed and the sower are constant, but there are four different reactions to the sowing. So most commentators agree that this is best thought of as the parable of the soils rather than the parable of the sower. So we are going to look at the four soils, the four reactions to the gospel message. And the first reaction then, 
Well, the first reaction is no reaction. The seed falls on the path, verse 4. So it has no chance of germination, and it's eaten by the birds. You get, you get the image? A path, it's been trodden and is hard, uh, impregnable, and the seed falls on it, and it, it's going nowhere. It's not going to germinate, and the birds come along and eat it. And this stands for the person who doesn't either understand the word explained to them or whose heart is hardened towards it like a well-trodden path. Now, we might have sympathy with someone who hasn't grasped a teaching, perhaps remembering an awful classroom experience of our own. However, this isn't an intellectual matter. It's a spiritual one. Note that in verse 15, what Jesus says, that the word is taken away by Satan. And Paul echoes this idea when he writes to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 4, verse 4. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now, although we should be aware of this, the devil snatching away the seed, we shouldn't overemphasize it. Note that after telling the parable, Jesus invites those who have ears to hear verse 9. Not describing the physical sense of hearing, but the willingness to listen. And the image that's being uh, imagined there is of somebody who covers their ears slightly concerned I might move my microphone here. I, I'm just not used to these, you know. Uh, cover your ears. Covers their ears and says, can't I hear a thing in here, you know? Well, it's a ridiculous image. But that's what some people are like. They cover their ears and then they can't hear. When I was preparing this uh, sermon, um, a colleague, I've done it already, haven't I? A colleague um, came into my mind, an, an ex-colleague. It, it was somebody that um, uh, I knew some years ago. He died some years ago. And do you know, periodically he comes into my mind. And this was one of the occasions. It was somebody that, um, that I liked. We got on well together. I think we had a respect for each other, though we were completely different. And I, when I remember him and I remember our conversations, they, they seemed to be full of laughter. But I remember him with sadness. Because on one occasion, he said to me, Mark, 
it's my choice to reject Christianity without understanding it, without knowing what it stands for. It's my choice to reject it without knowing. And what he was really saying to me was, don't tell me any more about it. I don't want to know. I'm rejecting it. And he died without Christ, and for that reason you can understand why he periodically comes to my mind, but with great sadness. You know, though, I do not think he is in a minority. I don't think so. You see, we as a race like to think that we would listen, weigh up the evidence, and make an informed choice. But I don't think we are like that. And many people reject Christ without really knowing anything about him or what he did or what as Christians we believe or stand for. I think it's actually more normal than abnormal, that more usual than, than unusual. You know, when you're in one of those situations where you wonder if you've said enough, what more could I have said? Uh, could I have put it a different way? Should I, should I keep trying to explain the gospel? And you know that experience? That experience, particularly when it's a friend or a loved one or a family member, and you can almost start to feel guilty, don't, can't you? What else could I say? And in a conversation with Peter Lewis some years ago, I don't like to think how many years ago, um, anymore, but uh, some years ago, Peter said something. You know those short sentences of Peter where in a short sentence he could just bring a kind of light and understanding to a practical situation. And he said this. They know enough to ask the next question. They know enough to ask the next question. But is that you? Do you know enough to ask the next question? But you're not doing. I mean, what would it cost? Uh, what would it cost to say to that Christian friend, okay, Tell me what it's about. You got five minutes. What is it all about? What would it cost to pick up a curious course pack and come on the 5th of February? What would it cost? Um, I said at the beginning, this is a short book. You know, you could start reading this book after tea. And I finished it before cocoa and bedtime, couldn't you? What would it cost 
to read Mark's gospel. Ask the next question. The next reaction is the superficial profession. Jesus imagines this as the seed falling on rocky places where there's not much soil, so the plant springs up quickly. Verse 5. It's a bit like in your gutters, don't you? Where the hawthorn sapling comes up in your gutters. It springs up quickly. This person is compliant to the call to respond to the gospel. They receive it with joy, Jesus says in verse 16. They're enthusiastic, but they don't persevere. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away, Jesus says, verse 17. They're not insincere, but they are superficial. Having no root is how Jesus puts it in verse 17. Perhaps they've made an impulsive or emotional reaction to follow Christ, but have not counted the cost of doing so. The pressure of persecution, or at least the fear of rejection. You know, the Lord himself encourages us to be ready for the cost of commitment. And Luke records one such occasion in chapter 14 of his gospel, verse 28, Jesus' words. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Of course, the purpose of such teaching is not to put us off, but to encourage us to develop deep roots so that we thrive in challenging times. There is a, a hymn that I have to confess I have mixed feelings about. It's an old hymn, but it has this line in it. Each victory will help us some other to win. Yeah? Each victory will help us some other to win. You know when Christians face trouble, we go through, I think, certain steps. The first step is to pray for God's help and relief. And we often bring to mind Psalm 23. And you're in a dark valley. And you pray that the Lord will lead you out of the dark valley 
to the still waters and the green pastures. Yeah, you prayed a prayer like that. And then nothing happens. So our prayers start to mature. And we ask God, what am I to learn from this experience? How am I to glorify you in this experience? We're becoming more mature and developing deeper roots. But I have to confess something, to be honest with you. At that point, I want to pray to God, and then can we call it quits? I mean, I don't mind dipping down the mountainside a bit, but I really do not want to go into the valley again. But the hymn writer is uh, wiser. Mark, you need this. In order to develop for a trial that's yet to come, that you're completely ignorant of, that we're not aware of, you need to develop deep roots now. Developing deep roots so that we can uh, survive difficult times. Actually, I'm going to add an illustration to you. I'm going to add a little minute. Um, you know if you're planting in your garden and you're adding compost, yeah? Are you with me or you completely know? Okay, you're planting in your garden. Add some compost to the soil and then backfill. Don't put pure compost in the hole. The roots just go round and round this lovely compost. You don't develop deep roots. You've got to stress the plant a bit for it to develop deep roots. So add some compost, sure, but put the soil and compost back in. Uh, so it's not too rich and easy for the plant. Well, the next um, uh, reaction is the suffocated uh, profession. Uh, the seed uh, germinates, but it's suffocated by weeds. Uh, this individual is not superficial, nor are they easily put off. In fact, life is slowly choked out of them by the competition. The competition of weeds. Verses 7 and 19, where Jesus gives the explanation. And he tells us what these weeds are. Uh, on the one hand, there are the worries of life and the deceitfulness of wealth and the desire for other things. Sometimes those things are perfectly good, but they become too desirable. Worry and the deceitfulness of wealth and desire for other things. Uh, so when we have a problem in uh, weeds, what do you have to do? 
well, you have to do the weeding. And um, I'm not wishing to turn this evening into a sort of gardener's world, but we gardeners have a, a saying about one year's seeds, seven years weeds. You get the image? If you let those weeds set, I'm also looking at farmers now I'm, I'm, uh, <laughs> uh, in, in our congregation. If you let those weeds set seed, they're going to be a trouble for years to come. So we have to do the weeding. Now, I have to say that I stand before you uh, someone with the gift of worry. And I do like comfort, not luxurious comfort, perhaps, more like carpet slippers, uh, an armchair, and classic FM, or perhaps a book. But I have a little collection of verses which I use to do the weeding. And um, I'll tell you what my verses are, and if they're helpful to you. They're verses, even parts of verses. And I actually normally refer to this as my smorgasbord, but we're getting too many images coming there, uh, you know, aren't we? But it's a little collection. You get the idea. Now, if they're helpful to you, well, make a note of them. But otherwise, you find your own verses uh, and do the weeding. Here they are anyway. Therefore... Do not worry about tomorrow. Each day will have enough trouble of its own. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Do not wear yourself out to get rich. Do not trust your own cleverness. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Encouragements and warnings we have to do the weeding in our lives if we're not to be choked. And then finally, there's the solid uh, profession. And this is imaged as good soil. So the seed germinates and the plant comes up, verse 8. And this stands for the person who accepts the word, verse 20. And theirs is seen to be a solid profession since they produce a crop. Moreover, Luke has an additional comment from Jesus that this crop is the product of perseverance. But have you noticed there's something missing? Jesus doesn't explain what the crop is. Uh, though some people make suggestions. R.T. Kendall suggests that it's repentance, redirection, and resolve. And aren't some people good at that sort of thing? And now I'm looking at John because he's good at that sort of thing. Isn't that good, eh? Okay, repentance, redirection, and resolve. Turning to God away from the old life with a commitment to persevere. That's his explanation. And I'm sure dear RT is right. But on the other hand, reference to 30, 60, or 100 times suggests an abundance. But it points to different levels of abundance. And perhaps 
Jesus is pointing to us to uh, seek God's grace, to lead abundant lives, whatever that means for us. He's being ambiguous. And he's being ambiguous, perhaps, on purpose. And I can remember times when when I was still working and a student might come and say, Mark, when you said that, did you mean this or did you mean that? And I might say, well, I kind of meant both of those. In fact, you could apply this to situations that we haven't even thought of yet. You know, I'm being ambiguous on purpose. So there's the idea of crop here, but perhaps Jesus is being ambiguous about what that crop is because we have to figure it out. What, how do I produce a crop at this stage in my life? Whether it's the springtime or the summer or autumn or even chilly winters of our lives, how do I crop? For Christ. Well, we're coming towards the end of our time here. And I've made some applications along the way rather than just say, here are the different types of soil. But there are a few loose ends. So let's make some final applications before we draw to a close this evening. The image of the sower suggests indiscriminate broadcasting of the word without trying to predict who is going to get saved. You can imagine the person walking along, the farmer walking along with a satchel kind of thing um, and putting their hand into the satchel and getting a handful of seed and scattering it. And in a way, that is how we treat the gospel, isn't it? This gospel is for all, for whoever you are and whatever stage you're at. You know, we've entitled this little series as Who Is This Man? We've just enjoyed Christmas, haven't we, if you do enjoy Christmas? We've enjoyed Christmas. We've enjoyed Emmanuel, God with us. But we also remember that the babe of Bethlehem becomes the Christ of Calvary, dying in our place for our sins so that we can know the forgiveness of sin and the hope of eternal life. And that's for everybody, whoever you are. Whatever you are like, come to Christ. Know the forgiveness of sins and the hope of eternal life. We shouldn't, though, uh, as Christians, be completely phased. I don't like this word, phased, but I can't think of a better word. And if you can think of a better word, just come and tell me, would you? But uh, we shouldn't be phased when people don't persevere. It's hurtful. It makes us sad. But we have to deal with the reality of life. 
And the problem is the soil, not the sower. Not everyone who makes a profession is saved. On the other hand, the reaction to the word at a point is not necessarily permanent. Uh, so we shouldn't despair when people don't respond positively. Because God can change the soil. Final gardening illustration then. If you live in uh, Nottinghamshire, you're almost certainly gardening on clay. And although it holds the nutrients well, it's very hard to work. And so gardeners do things to improve the soil. You add compost and horticultural grit and sharp sand. And over a period of years, the soil improves. But you know something? It's always clay. It's not like that with God. God can change the soil, can change a person. At one point, the disciples almost despair of who could ever be saved. And they, that's what they say to Jesus. Luke records it. Who then can be saved? And Jesus says, what is impossible with man is possible with God. So we shouldn't despair when someone appears to be one soil type because God, that's just them at that moment in time. It, God is able to change people and they may react differently at a different point in the future. And finally, to reiterate, those of us who have received the message of the kingdom, well, we should ask God how do I produce a crop just now? What's my crop in this uh, stage of, of my life? So then, four soils, four reactions to the gospel. Let's pray for a moment. Lord, we've heard your word and we ask for grace to respond to it aright. Some of us need the openness to ask the next question. Some of us need courage to persevere, while others need to be warned or reassured. As we commit ourselves to your grace, please help us to yield a crop in the kingdom of God. Amen.